This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, so we're moving into um, a, a couple of very interesting afternoon sessions that will follow one on the other, uh, so we can pack things in before you all have to take off. And um, I'm just here to introduce the uh, moderator for the next session, and that's Emily Roxworthy, who's a professor of theater and dance at UC San Diego. She's also the chair of the university, the system-wide committee on affirmative action and diversity, and in that role, she serves on the steering committee for the advance project. And then I also want to just put in a little plug, because this will affect a lot of you. Emily and one of her students, Heather Ramey, who's here as well today, are uh, helping to develop a our own UC theater intervention. So as you listen today about the things that our speaker has to um, uh, entertain you with, um, you can be thinking about uh, how this will affect you all immediately at some point in the near future. So, Heather, Emily. I'm very excited that here at the the, uh, fifth and final advance roundtable, we have an entire panel devoted to theater. Um, I think that's really great, yes. Um, And our next speaker models precisely what the arts have to bring to um, the sciences and to the academy um, at large. He has inspired um, similar programs uh, to the ones he's going to talk about around the country, including here um, at the University of California. Jeffrey Allen Steiger is the Artistic Director of the new Center for the Application and Scholarship of Theater in Medicine at George Washington University's School of Medicine, where he's using theater for dialogue and artistic simulation to improve diversity, patient-centered care, and clinical communication. He's the founding artistic director of the University of Michigan CRLT Players, that's Center for Research in Learning on Learning and Teaching, uh, and the CRLT Players is a 10-year University of Michigan advance uh, collaboration. His most recent work is titled Milestones, and it's a play that explores burnout and unprofessionalism in medicine. Uh, Mr. Steiger's work, his body of work, really contributes to all three of the roundtable goals um, that we have today. First of all, in terms of examining issues of workplace climate, and here is my chance to talk about Shakespeare, of course, Um, uh, as Shakespeare, to paraphrase what Shakespeare has Hamlet say in Act 3, Scene 2 about theater, paraphrasing, the purpose of playing is to hold the mirror up to nature. And as Dr. Uri, Uri explained of, um, of Steiger's methods and the CRLT player's methods, he creates original interactive plays and sketches partly by interviewing us, by interviewing academic personnel. So it's a, a way to really start to examine um, these issues. But it's also a way, our second goal, to examine the dimensions of workplace climate and how experience varies um, by gender, race, and ethnicity. Uh, he uses theatrical strategies to promote organizational change and education, drawn from theater luminaries such as Augusto Boal and Anne Bogart, as well as principles of characterization that allow us to embody diverse perspectives and begin to really understand them. And finally, as he's going to discuss, he can equip us with tools, resources, strategies for assessing and improving climate, um, as we'll see in the title of his talk, using interactive theater programs to impact departmental climate. Mr. Steiger.
Hello, it's a, a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, really fantastic. I have just, I've been looking forward to this for, for quite a long time and has not disappointed at all. I, it's so great on, on many different levels. I realize there have been other events where I began by saying I'm so pleased and honored to be here. And really, I think I was lying at those other things. It's a, a pleasure um, to, to learn so much. So what I'd like to do today is to give you an an overview of different theatrical practices or approaches that I've been taking that really uh, mirror great work being done by many people um, nationally and internationally. This is is roughly an order of the events, although whenever I show an order of events, I always feel like I'm murdering people. But I want you to know that today what I want to do is really focus specifically on a lot of different examples of theater, so ways in which I can bring to life Diverse examples of theater applied to create dialogue in a variety of settings for a variety of different people. There are a lot of different ways I could characterize theater or theater for dialogue, applied theater, interactive theater, but I thought the best way actually was to really plagiarize the goals for the roundtable today. Because really, theater is highly effective at um, portraying workplace climate, highly effective at engaging participants emotionally and intellectually. I added a few words. And and generating self-reflection and really thinking about issues uh, related to strategies, tools, actual specific practical approaches. Um, There are um, a lot of articles and research that we all know that begin focused on climate organizational change that often have a reference of saying organizational change, climate, culture is difficult to define. And then these papers go on to define it, I think, relatively well. But I've noticed this trend of it's difficult to define. It's difficult to define. Theater, I think, is very good at concretizing, making clear the specific examples, the ways, the cumulative events that make up a culture and a climate and an organization. So what I'd like to do is really jump in and start throwing different examples at you to give you a taste of the ways that theater can be applied. It's a bit counterintuitive, but it's at the end that I'd like to talk about structures and budgets and some of those details, but to really help give an experience of that. Before I I step in, I wanted to say, um, Professor Uri had that story about that one conference and the dynamics that took place. It actually reminded me of another story when we presented a sketch called Faculty Mentoring, which is focused on faculty mentoring, two characters. And we presented it to a group of about 90 chairs in chemistry at the National Science Foundation. And after that three-day event, I found myself in the lobby with uh, three of the women who attended the event. And they were talking about the frustration with the lack of conversation about climate and culture over those three days. And I ended up then in a van to the airport with three of the men who attended. And I swear I'm not making this up. They said, uh, yeah, they were very frustrated by how much time was spent talking about climate (laughs) and culture over the three days. And I wish there was an open, you know, IRB approval of hotel lobbies and vans. So an example of the theater, and that's where I'll be taking us to, is um, milestones. I wanted to give as a case study to be able to bring us as a window to talk about advance. Milestones was created over a four-month period with my colleague, Dr. Charles Samenow, a psychiatrist at George Washington University. And our goal was to create a production about medical professionalism, so professionalism in medicine. And we had about $15,000 to spend on actors. So the goals, in the end... We needed to put up a slide in front of our future audiences that roughly looked like this, discuss differing values, perspectives, discuss barriers, strategies, formulate an action plan. We knew that that was going to be our first slide. 
all the research and work I did to try to understand the definition of professionalism basically kept coming back to these elements. These were the elements I saw as a trend in all these definitions of professionalism. So clearly, the play was going to be about, you know, everything. So, <laughs> so the question, how to get to a production that somehow three-dimensionally depicts issues and dynamics related to professionalism. So the approach was to, again, read, um, find whatever I get my hands on, and attend a distressed physician course, which is a real thing. I didn't make it up. A three-day course for physicians that currently also has a waiting list that goes back. They do it at Vanderbilt. It's a group maxed at about 12 people. I believe they do it every three weeks or so. And these are 12 docs, a few who ever go there by choice. So they're sent there by the hospital in trouble with accreditation, other elements, dynamics for sexual boundary violations, for acting out abusive behavior. And over these three-day periods, go through what amounts to really is a kind of group therapy. So I had the opportunity to attend as a visiting professor, that was my title, um, with these 12 docs who on day one were um, upset, not happy to be there. And over a period of three days, had an opportunity to really see behind the veil and hear all these various stories. Activities included, as an example, uh, genograms. So homework on the first night was to actually map out their own family of origin stories and then come back and present on their own families. The stories they told about their own training, the residency, um, the culture and experiences they had where they were never given a model to process a large amount of really traumatic experiences that they observed and experienced as practicing docs. And by the end, we're really quite transformed. So I went through this lens as a means to really look at the different issues. We ended up with a two-act play. With the first act is medical school in 15 minutes. So, you know, Shakespeare, look at that, call back. Shakespeare in 15 minutes, this is medical school in 15 minutes. So all the trends, the stories that I heard, try to incorporate it to bring to life all these pivotal moments and the dynamics with four actors, one actress playing the uh, specific character from beginning to end, and the other three actors shifting throughout the different production, becoming different people to bring to life some of those situations, dynamics, and relationships. And then act two, we jump three years later and meet again Melinda, Dr. Smith, in that nightmare shift in the emergency room where all these various, various uh, elements combine to create that nightmare shift, the way the system hits individual and individual hits system. So an opportunity to look at the system of education, what she learned, where she learned it, how she learned it, the dynamics, and how that might be connected to and associated three years later with the way that the hospital is operating. So this grid is Act 2. This is 18 minutes of what eventually results in a code for a patient. And as the actors work, as they present the production, they present it within the design of a PowerPoint. Since PowerPoint is so prevalent in medicine, two-thirds and one-third Q&A, they perform within it so they're able to interact with animation. And we're able to bring to life um, also the design that, uh, through study and education, the docs are also familiar with. So things like flowcharts appear on actual bodies, the lab working on a cadaver, studying the, the ways in which these medical students are absolutely overwhelmed with, with information, with studying. In this case, animation, words, pile, a pile, and pile, and actually engulf her in the light. And then act two, 
as we see the flowchart appear behind her. And this is a medical student taking a consult call that's piped in. So again, a reminder, the reason I'm doing this is just to give you as a case study to really take us into a bunch of different examples to be able to help, um, I hope, bring to life the ways that theater can work as an effective medium for dialogue. And to give you last further example, I have one minute, 30 seconds monologue that opens our play. So we start our play in a prologue where we meet Melinda as a third year resident at the Distressed Physician course. So we start with this monologue on her day one. And that's when we go back in time and see her experience as a medical school up to that second act in the clinic. So here is Melinda, prologue. I'm a professional. To answer your question, that's why I'm here at this distressed physician course. I'm a professional. And because my administrator made me come here. I am here because the staff at my hospital are not vetted. Because those staff who were not vetted vet other staff who then multiply and metastasize and become nurses. I am here because I was upset. I was upset because students walk in and they're wearing jeans and they're texting and they're failing to treat what we do, what we are trying to teach them to do, with the proper level of respect. See, they have me in this tiny box, and if I don't stay perfectly square in that box, then anyone from the janitor to the administrator can write me up. So I bent the laryngoscope, that's all I did. This student handed me this laryngoscope, the same tool I made a note on twice, mind you. He handed it to me, and I bent the damn thing and I threw it. And I said something like, and it wasn't that loud, I said something like, for the sake of this patient and all other patients, this tool is retired. Okay? I just saved someone's life. And, yes, completely by accident, completely by accident, the tool struck the student. I did not mean to... I just through it, and that's why I'm here. And your other question, what was I like as a new student? Young, nervous, untrained. So that's our prologue. Oh, thanks. I hope you don't mind. I, this feels better for me. Okay. So what happens over the, the sequence of events then, from 90 minutes to three hours in a workshop, we begin by presenting that production. Pre-show as people walk in. It's theme music from different TV shows about medicine. And then it just starts. And after that first act, we then have a conversation with um, attendings, residents, medical students. It depends upon the event, where we are, and have a dialogue about the reactions to Act 1, what resonated with them, what stood out, and then take that as a bridge into Act 2, where we then go into the ER and engage them in a dialogue about system and individual, about the places they felt things went awry. And going back to a comment made by, by Meg earlier, by Professor Yuri, about the ways in which Melinda has had to adapt. So we create a conversation a variety of ways. What got her to this place, thinking about where she started and where she is now, what she had to do to survive, 
what she may have given up, what she lost, and um, how that ended up being a part of the different dynamics. So the activity that we ask our audience to do is to engage with this flowchart, to find a situation and think specifically, practically, what can they do? So they analyze one of these moments that were about 20 that led to this code, examine it to look at what are the things that they could do, what are the things that could happen in the system, to name practical strategies for change. I wanted to give you one more piece of this, since the basis of the theater is interactive. So the idea is after these productions to be able to get behind the scene further and talk to the characters. So find out what motivated someone to do something they did or why they didn't do something they did. So I wanted to give you a chance to meet one of the characters from the production. And his name is Dr. Jones. And of course, he's a surgeon. Because in all the different interviews I hear, the ways in which stereotype and reality and the thin lines between the two together and how we might be able to present some of these common dynamics but also break apart those stereotypes. But here's a scene from the production that's in this third year part of Act One where we meet Dr. Jones briefly. Who are you? Um, M&M. M&M. And Melinda. Yeah. You don't scrub before the surgeon? Have you ever been in surgery before? No. Right. Do you know what we're doing today? A rotator cuff. Yeah, what are the typical steps for repairing a rotator cuff? You remove fragments of tendons, bursa. You make room for the tendon. Why? So it isn't irritated, you need to shape the bone. Then what? You sew the edges of the uh, saphirus and spinatus. Okay, saphirus, you want to give the shoulder an antipsychotic. That's great. You're not allowed in my room. A medical student's job is to be prepared. If you haven't done the reading and you don't know the anatomy, you're going to kill someone. Sorry. You know, there isn't a thought in your head, I'm going to find illuminating. Now to you, if you could take a minute to talk to someone next to you. If you could ask Dr. Jones a question or make any comment to him, what might it be? If you could take a minute, talk to someone next to you and think about that. Great, just to give you a taste. So, yes, um, for the next couple minutes, I'm going to be Dr. Jones, so questions or comments that you have. (laughs) Fine, thank you. Yes? Do you think that interaction facilitates learning? I absolutely do. Well, she needs to understand exactly how serious this is, and I am pretty confident that if any of you have a loved one, patient, or family member that I'm about to perform surgery on, you wouldn't want her in the room. You wouldn't want someone potentially tripping over something. You wouldn't want someone in the way. Medical students have to know what they're doing at all times. It's part of the training. I would not have acted differently, no. Would you have acted differently if she was your daughter? <laughs> she was my daughter. I, I would make sure she was not at the same university I was at. <laughs> yes? Where did you learn your style of teaching? Uh, from the docs before me. It's a, it's a model that worked for me. I think it's a model that works. Yes? I'm sorry? How easy was it for you to forget your own process under training? How easy was it for me to forget my own process under training? The process... uh, 
I see experiencing the same. I, I mean, I deserve to have my hand slapped. Uh, it's part of the strength thing. It's part of what's necessary to create a good doc and a good surgeon. If she can't handle it, then she may be one of the 10, 15% who should not be in medical school. Here and then here, the last two. I, I don't know other pedagogical models that are going to work within the one-minute tops that I have to be able to do what we need to do. Nor do I necessarily think there are other models that are going to be as effective as the model that needs to take place. She needs to know right then, right there, and she needs to act, react, and think under stress. So if she can't react to me while I'm peppering these questions, then she shouldn't be in the room. Is there a way to tell her? Oh, so I said go right there. So. Yes. About 10, 15 percent. And I'll take one more. Is there a way to have the same result of not having her in the room but give her faith that she can learn that to be in the room? I, I don't have time for that. <laughs> Dr. Jones is gone. So um, I would not normally play him and, because, first of all, that was scary. I don't like that. <laughs> But the idea is that it's an opportunity to really look and explore and talk about, okay, intentions and behavior. What does Dr. Jones value? You know, and um, I guess I should ask you, so what does Dr. Jones value? And I'll try to say this. Yes? Clinical competence. Clinical competence. Efficiency. Toughness. Toughness. His time. His time. Natural, selection. Natural selection. A great list. One more. Reliability. Yeah, so here's the behavior, here's the intention, here's the value system. And so an opportunity to work with the audience to talk about, okay, well, given all that, get me back up here. Um, where is the line between educating, strengthening, humiliating, and hazing? And how is sexism a part of your educational approach? And pardon if there's any spelling issues, I couldn't get Spanish to turn off on my tool, so... So the idea is that when we engage the docs is a lot of them really find the situation pretty fuzzy depending upon where they are, is where was the line crossed, where wasn't it crossed. Um, and when we really start engaging some of the other lines that you didn't hear today, was, well, then how is sexism or is that a part of, of strength building? And uh, it's very interesting as we start to unearth some of these dynamics. So again, where I started with this as a case study was just to think about how might theater be used to present, portray the accumulative day-to-day aspects of climate or culture. What does it look like, um, aerial and on the ground? And theater really as a craft, I think, represents a great opportunity to bring the familiar into an unfamiliar space. So to make alive various moments, but in a new way from a distance. Um, CRT Players is a window into the advance. That uh, began about 14 years ago as a single position, you heard a little bit about that, and then grew over the period of about um, 13 years, and really that pivotal moment was definitely advanced, working with Abby Stewart and that collaboration. So it wasn't just about bringing to life the dynamics and elements uh, related to faculty life, our faculty meeting play, our faculty advising faculty play, our tenure and promotion play, but really it gave a great view of just simply what we were trying to do with theater overall. So the fence is one example. So this is one 25-minute um, act that's focused on dynamics in a tenure and promotion meeting. 
So an executive committee meeting in this fictional chemistry department. So the outline of this, oh yes, that is the, um, this is at the DC, I think the Society for Chairs and Neuroscience is what this event was. So over 90 minutes to two hours, um, after introduction, we present the play, this 25-minute play, and we ask the audience as they're watching it to write down the various moments, the places they felt the conversation went awry. So where do they think things got off track in this meeting? And then after that play, we ask them for those specific moments, and we write them up on flip charts and number them consecutively. And then give them scripts and groups and have them find moments where they felt things went awry on our lists and actually think about what they might do to intervene in this particular meeting. So they get the script and they think about strategies to intervene and change the course of the dialogue, in which case they actually do that. They step up on stage and become a sixth faculty member And we engage the script, and then they take us off script as they try practical strategies for keeping the conversation as equitable and fair as possible. The goal is not to get the candidate tenure. The goal is to keep the conversation fair. That was created much in the same way like Milestones, through conversations, interviews, bringing in different faculty, uh, particularly the faculty who I want in the room to work with are those faculty who might be most critical of the idea of using theater. Those are my favorite people because involving them in the process means they uh, become quick allies, become invested in the material because they had input in it, helped shape it, and even gave it their approval. So it's a great way to build allies. Some of the research, um, this last piece... And the first piece used as a means to try to identify and think about dynamics we could bring to life in the fence. And so one snippet of the fence, I had some actors read some of the lines cold for you. Here's a snippet of it. Okay, let's take a look at the letter from Massachusetts. So there are several ambiguous comments regarding her publishing. It's contradictory. In the first paragraph, he says she published too much. In a later paragraph, he mentions she didn't publish enough. He questions the quality of the work based on the quantity of her research, but there are no specific criticisms regarding the actual merits of her research. This letter is full of discrepancies. She's published a lot of papers in really second-rate journals. She hasn't published enough in top-tier journals. So, Don, you're saying the quality of the paper she's published? I'm saying that this is an interpretation of the letter. The number of published papers is less significant because of where they have appeared, or generally too small, based on where they have not appeared. He is saying the work is good, but he is not saying that the work is great. He never actually refers to the work as great work. Yes, but he's comparing her work to the first thinkers in the field. I think it's important to point out that she's doing unconventional and cutting-edge work that's challenging some of the popular ideas. The high-impact journals aren't taking it because she's going in different directions. I'm not sure if these journals are the journals for this work. Maybe we should ask her what journals we should be looking at. Maybe we should. I read this letter differently. He refers to the research as generally forward-looking, which granted is effusive, but I do not see a specific reference linking the number of journals to a metric of quality. Well, it's, it's very ambiguous. He says, perhaps if she combined more papers and had a longer, more developed discussion as opposed to individually focused ideas, the strength of her work would be more accessible. Well, what does accessible mean in this context? What does strength mean in this context? How are these terms being used? 
How many papers did she publish? 25. She's published 25. Yes, she's published 25 papers. Why is this even a discussion? We should be handing her tenure and a gift certificate to Ortonique. But look at where these papers have been. We gave Fred tenure yes, for yeah, publishing the six Prize papers. winners and, were writing in. And it was in the high-impact journals. Exactly. This isn't about numbers. You mean it's not just about numbers? Put it this way. My four-year-old daughter's drawn hundreds of pictures. The pictures sit in drawers and they hang on the fridge. Don't get me wrong. I love them. They're beautiful. But should we give her tenure in the art school? I think you're trying to make a point. But my point is that this discussion needs to be substantive, not quantitative. But I do think the question of quantity is an important one. Considering there was extra time there, she did stop the clock. It is what it... I stopped it there. So one thing that comes out of this is we found there's... We have one, um, one actress who plays different characters. We have actors play different characters all the time. We found... Um, Pretty much you can count on it. If our actress plays a character who's for the candidate, there's a conversation about her reasons for speaking for the candidate, a hidden motivation. And if she plays the character who speaks very much against the candidate, there's a big conversation about why she's doing that. Um, I hear the term Queen Bee come up a lot. And in the most egregious example, a group of about 35 men, there were two women in there, uh, the facilitator asked, so what do you think about Donna, that character? And one of the men said, well, we know she's not married. Great guffawing on that one. So conversation realized there's always an imprint on that character. She can never be for a candidate because of merit. And uh, it's always about gender. And of course, what I feel this replicates and shadows everything you've been hearing today, that in our own dynamics in that room, the same dynamic is playing out in a variety of ways, which I hope is an opportunity to be able to delve behind that to be able to then challenge the attendees uh, regarding what we're hearing and the implications and meaning of that. Before I go on, I'd love to hear, if you don't mind, just pepper in a few questions and answer, just because uh, I start to feel lost if I don't hear from you. It's just a few things. Yes? I'm intrigued by this step at which point the character, the actor and character, is interviewed by the audience. I think that's really, really critical. Among other things, I realized we asked you questions we would not have asked the surgeon had we observed that horrible interaction. I'd just love to get your thoughts on that. Generally, the idea of the interactive and uh, the ways that those dynamics play out, particularly, specifically, as you said, the ways that you felt free to ask questions that you wouldn't normally. Yes, so that's typically how it goes. So it's an opportunity to really ask these questions, make these comments that are also an indirect way of speaking to one's colleagues. So there are times people in the audience, of course, there's a particular tone you can pick up, as we all know. Uh, a comment or question may be made that's a way to um, almost reflect off of the stage as a means to make a comment to someone there. And we try to work together in that. Our approach to the interactive is really thinking about the audience as one part, the facilitator as one part, and the characters. So we're all able to rotate different ideas and bring up different points. Yes. So it's a safe way to say things indirectly to colleagues. It's a great way to project when people don't necessarily even know that they're projecting. For example, asking the audience, which I think was a drop ball in 2007, uh, who thinks this is exaggerated? So once people start saying, I think it's exaggerated, I'm able to ask, who doesn't think it's exaggerated? And someone else will raise their hand, and they're often from the same department. So we're able to say, well, what does that mean? Yes. A couple? Yes. Yeah. 
Donna is re- um, when you revealed to the audience this um, two-sided when I mean you you know this no-win situation for for Donna, do people own it? Yes, it not always slash it's hard to tell. <laughs> Um, slash continually trying to find different ways to be able to get to that space. Um, currently, I uh, left CRLT Theater after helping with the transition because I really fell in love with, with medicine, but then also the idea of having one foot in the institution and one foot out, because I feel like what that's given an opportunity to do is to be able to move around a bit more in spaces that uh, both I enjoy be able to create as grand theater as possible. But then also I feel like I can get away with a little more. And the reason I said that was not to try to give you my sudden introduction or narrative, but to say I think that it allows to be able to push audiences more, even though I can't light a fire and leave, I guess. You know, good luck, I've been here for three weeks, here's your play. And push audiences to a place where they're suddenly very angry because the institutional survivor needs to be, survival of the piece needs to be based on an idea of it being successful and helpful. But I have started to ask more direct questions. So to push, have you noticed the men in the room, men in the room all nodded from my perspective when that was said, Queen B, but I didn't see any of the women nod. Just let me check that. Was that your experience? So I'm able to ask those more. One more. I'm curious to know, just sort of based on what you said earlier, that, you know, the three women that you met in the lobby versus the three guys that you rode to the airport with, what's your sense in terms of after these interactive experiences? Are they transformational for people? I mean, do people come to you afterwards and say that really affected the way I think? Or Right. And so I'll, may I table that one to go on to the next couple to bring us back to that? And so I'll come back to that. Thanks. Um, last two on the fence is one, our Bob character, that one character who talked about his child's artwork. People love him. Um, but often we find a great conversation about that one guy in the department, how much psychological space that one guy takes up, um, both, I mean, psychological and physical space this guy takes up in this department and how profound that is. And frequently a lot of our dialogue is, well, how do we get past that? Space. What's the symptom? What's the cure? What's the hyper-focus on that one individual? Is it helping? Is it stopping? Is it as helpful as me looking at that wall and saying, move? You know, what is it that isn't working? Um, but lastly, when we do the interventions and audience members step up and become the sixth faculty member, we found pretty much, you know, anecdotally as a pattern, the men who step up and become that sixth fa- faculty member debate head-on those characters who are problematic. And frequently, as a trend, we found the women who come up often want to start the sketch before it starts. That is to say, to say something into the ear of the chair, or before beginning saying, so I notice we're all here, just a quick question, could we maybe run through the bylaws before we begin the sketch or play? And it is pretty much, also anecdotally, we find our actors who are trained to respond the best they can as characters often have very little defense against the very strategic, clearly hard work being done Whereas we see, again, frequency as a pattern, the men who are stepping up are engaging head-on in debate. And, of course, the big question there is about burnout cost and uh, what's the most effective way to help uh, create agency and change in a department. So three examples of training actors for this interactive. So suddenly, traditionally trained actors may find themselves in front of an audience of faculty and chairs and suddenly under the gun, having never really had the experience. So one of those things we work on is language and jar- jargon and source work 
and then certainly rehearsal. Here's an example of some ways we train actors with um, getting familiar with language and jargon. This is Professor uh, Mika Levac-Monti, who actually acted in one of our sketches, the faculty meeting for quite some time. Uh, As an untenured person, he's brave. Here's one example of this four-page document. Um, For our traditionally trained actors, a faculty member gets tenure when his or her tenure track comes to a successful end as a result of a tenure review. At the end of one's tenure track, one is up for tenure even just up. Jim's up this year. No wonder he seems so freaked out all the time. The get plus noun formulation is sometimes expressed with an is plus participle, but usually only in the case of past tense, though Jane was tenured two years ago. However, the got plus noun construction is always correct. So we actually have to walk through the actors very clearly. In one case, I had an actor on stage get asked to compare a CV, and he answered brilliantly without ever knowing what a CV was. He didn't know what a CV was. (laughs) Source work is uh, named by... Anne Bogart, a theater practitioner, named Source Work as an opportunity for actors to engage the heart of a particular piece or a sketch or a script. So what are the essential questions at the core of a particular piece? Here's one exercise I take actors through as a means to start to plug into and get a greater understanding of the issues. I tell them, so you have a million, millions of dollars. In groups, create a science department that is as sexist, racist, classist, etc. as possible, but within state and federal laws. <laughs> Report out, we build one single, perfectly awful department. And then based on what you know, how does this fictional department relate to the actual operation, culture, and climate of most science departments or any department? And we begin to dialogue um, about the various ways it ends up looking and reflecting in, in many ways of different departments. And then I ask them in groups, forget all that, build a science department focused on producing high-quality, quality, innovative work. And the groups come back with making big plugs for diversity, having not necessarily using the word diversity. You know, different perspectives coming from different backgrounds, different experiences, et cetera, et cetera, discipline. So the ways that people, um, they need people to work together in a variety of ways. But then also they end, sometimes end up talking about conflict, and this came up earlier, about the need for conflict and disagreement in healthy ways, appropriate ways to move on. But lastly, our rehearsals then focus on uh, questions that they might get from the audience and talking about it, but never canned because we want them to be as, as natural as possible. Um, we don't want them to answer in a vacuum, but to always be answering based upon that particular relationship with that audience, wherever they are in that place. So University Department of the Musical, I'm just going to give you a couple more examples to bring us around, is a real show say that. So the idea was, what are all the different ways that the theatrical mediums could be used, all their different strengths or challenges? And I always felt, well, a musical has the opportunity to perhaps implicitly challenge something particular in the academic environment is, I think music's very emotional. There are people I know who hate musicals. But how might the musical be used to bring to life certain issues in ways that uh, we might not normally be able to bring those issues to life? So through interviews, different research, trying to get narratives We created the university department, the musical, an hour musical that focuses on a sociology department and a graduate student whose thesis is creating a musical about a sociology department. So it's his writing, and he sings as well. We have a faculty member, the chair. We have a student. um, We have a staff member, and they all sing. I wanted to give you a snippet. I won't play the whole thing. But here's one song that takes place uh, between the student and a faculty member in a social change course. And her project is to come up with a social change project to affect change at the university. 
I'm not uh, asking you to put a man on the moon here. Let's, let's just try to think a little bit deeper about this. Your midterm paper is to create your own theoretical social change project that could be used to address an injustice or, or problem in your own community. She doesn't get it. So draw from lessons from she can't see it. It's not like when she was young. You could fight it. You could change it. There's no point to it now. It isn't like when she So it goes on, the faculty member goes on to um, sing her part about how disaffected she finds this student and they end up overlapping to the idea of uh, generation to generation and their views of each other. We used that particular piece at the University of Michigan. Uh, we traveled with it a lot, the whole thing, but we used different songs, in this case, among a few others, with managers at the University of Michigan to talk about generational perspective and differences. And they had a, a great conversation about how they viewed uh, the people who were reporting to them. Quick example, um, University of New Hampshire, just, I was there for three weeks to write a play for them, and this was a 30-minute play that looks at a search process, and uh, the steps, as you see, right to left, the faculty meeting to assign the, the search committee, the writing of the job description, the gripe from the outgoing faculty member who feels he's not involved enough in the actual search process, they're doing the search to replace his line, and the discussion about the two candidates, and finally the welcoming of the candidate, and this one was written in reverse, so we present the play actually backwards with the welcoming of the candidate, so the audience is put in the position of investigating and trying to figure out what led to what. Is This is... Looking at the review process, the admission process for medical students or residents, and this is a step we're trying to go with the theater at GW into simulation. So the idea is to present this audience of um, physicians who might be interviewing applicants for residency and give them the simulation of meeting these three characters bit by bit. So through this process, they hear the personal statements of these characters. They hear parts of those personal statements. Then they reflect on what are the strengths and challenges of each applicant. Then they hear each character answer a question. Then they hear a little bit more about the characters. And as those characters are there, these are the actual actresses' names, actors' names, is there also information is appearing next to these particular people. So they get new information, and they hear different information. They get more information as it goes on, always assessing what changed for them, what stayed the same, what was different. Then after a great discussion of that, over a period of half an hour, we change one data point. This is the closest I'll ever come to science, is right here. <laughs> so we change just the university. And so then they need to discuss, okay, what changed for them? 
What's different? What stayed the same? And then we bring it back. And then one more switch. We have these three. So then the audience needs to assess what changed for them, what stayed the same. I wanted to add the last presentation that we did. And we have a young white woman, well, stage right, I'm sorry, a young white woman will be the University of Florida. We have a woman of color, Meharry, and then we have St. University, an older white guy. And we found they were absolutely locked in on. The white audience members were very much locked into, and I would add, triggered by the runs of controversial blog exposing injustices in healthcare. And it, didn't, it took a lot of push to start to really think about the stealing a library book. So the actual approach dynamic of what took place in that room was really unexpected and fascinating. We're going to be presenting it more and trying to figure out what actually is a pattern of responses. But um, despite the really lackluster personal statement from this person from St. Louis University, despite a number of issues, there was this trigger and anxiety as it came to controversial and, uh, from my perspective, also race and gender intersecting going to go through um, how we created CRLT, but I think just before I go through the last part about assessment or data, I'd love to hear a few questions or, or comments, and I'll go through a few of those structures. I know I said I'd come back to one point. Yes? Um, we just did a, uh, Carol Goldberg, UCLA, uh, we just did a, a major program at our university for uh, senior academic leaders to try to uh, provide them with greater insight into things like implicit bias, stereotype threat as they affected the campus as a whole, and we brought on somebody who was a, a brilliant member of our faculty who clearly thought that what was needed in this setting was a lot of scientific data, uh, just over and over again, uh, presenting data that supported uh, the existence and pervasiveness of these phenomena. Um, you're obviously offering a very different approach to dealing with leadership, and I'm wondering how you see the relationship uh, if any, between these strategies for affecting changes in the culture? The relationship between the strategies? Yes. I see. So ways that they could be combined are currently combined? Could be combined, gotcha. might be prioritized, might be sequenced, might be... I see. Right. Um, right, right. Yes, so... Um, I really appreciated the presentation earlier talking about data and what it can do and what it, what it can't do or where it's strongest and where it may not be as, as strong. And I think one place that this particular approach is strong isn't necessarily at communicating the specific data, but it is good at portraying the ways the data acts out. But more so, I think it's very good at engaging people's biases, perceptions, perspectives, and creating introspection in that way. So I think the data is really important for people to know, to have a basis and context. And I think not just the theater, there's a lot, of, a lot of work being done that challenges audience members, but there's a different place, I think, for that work of saying, okay, here's the data, where do you fit in? What is it you do or don't do? What do you see or you don't see? So I think those two together, if I answered your question a little bit. Right. Yes. Hi, kind of a follow-up to her question, Elizabeth Ozer from UCSF. Um, what I noticed that you, you cited up there a paper, which is a paper clearly on implicit unconscious bias that you were drawing on. So I think I'm wondering, um, in terms of what you use in your skits, 
are you drawing on the literature? And might it, you know? Do you ever do something where this is really about implicit bias, and you're drawing on the data from four papers, or you know, something like that, so that it, it clearly is reflecting that literature? I see. The way that I do that, and this is going to sound very cheesy, just frankly, is people who are experts who really know the literature. I, I make sure that I'm collaborating with them, coming to previews. Um, making sure that what I'm hearing in different my own interviews are lining up with the research that they know three-dimensionally. So if that's how that works. I get more sleep than that person, I guess. Great. And one more here. When you're uh, Ola Vainostotter at UC Santa Cruz, who is your audience at these various universities? Are you doing this for the general faculty or staff or administration or all, all of the above? I'm just curious. Yes, all of the above. So in medicine at times, it's been for uh, different hospital administrators, hospital directors, definitely for residents, for attendings, for medical students. Uh, the other work, it's rarely for students. It's for chairs, deans. At times, we're invited into a faculty meeting say, to present a faculty meeting sketch to the faculty to talk about faculty meeting dynamics, or present a mentoring sketch at a conference as part of an institute focused on particular issues. Um, and there are other times when there is just open invitation and two different productions for a variety of different audiences. So it really depends on the issues, the context, and the goals, but it's for all of the above. Yes. Well, one more. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I have a question. How um, do campuses integrate your particular presentation to their ongoing programming? And uh, A, does that actually happen? And two, how do you know? Yes. yes. Um, so times, I know this will come as no surprise to all of you, times this programming might get delegated to the 90 minutes focused on you know, diversity or equity um, and I, um, I know there are, there are other consults who I've worked with at the University of Michigan who think very carefully about what they agree to and what, what they don't agree to actually with that in mind. How committed is the university to a particular topic or goal? The idea is I have generally say yes to everything because I think that what theater can do, at least effectively, even in 90 minutes, is potentially affect people to think about their own... Um, their own ideas, their own perspectives, sorry, their own biases, as a means to be able to be more, um, more careful in the day-to-day -day activities of their own department. I'm going to a slide to do that. So here's some of the... I'll go back to this, but here's some of the responses to our faculty meeting play. Is here's one response as a follow-up. Um, I think this presentation is excellent, right to the point. I find it... You know, way more effective than other graphs and such. Uh, I come across responses from shrugging shoulders to my colleagues saying it's a bit heavy-handed, isn't it? You know, it was good, but our department's not like that. And she accidentally sent that to the entire department. Yes. And what came back was um, a whole lot of responses from her colleagues. And here was one. You know, I should probably confess that I'm likely one of the people who said that I found the sketch a bit heavy-handed. I expect the sketch was probably more powerful if you yourself have suffered from some or all the injustices portrayed, and I definitely should have been more sensitive to that. And he concluded the length by saying, I guess it also made me wonder if there is any disparity in my behavior or if my interrupting may have a more negative impact on female colleagues, colleagues given the general climate issues. The reason I put it up there is, even in those 90 minutes 
Um, as much as we're not able to make the institution think about it more overall, more globally, we like to believe that there is a way in which to get people to reflect um, and think about their own involvement. Yes, and this is the three ways we assessed the faculty meeting, certainly providing feedback generally. The other was assessments of and justification for the theater program and assessments of and justification for the use of theater for purposes of institutional transformation. Now, you probably can't see this very well, but this is the post-assessment that people would fill out when they would see the faculty meeting on paper. And then there would be follow-up conversations that Abby Stewart would conduct. And all of it was a way to try to get a look at how might people be changing their behavior or thinking about things differently. Before I go back to just my last piece, you see I tried to weave... I can't just keep talking. I'd love to hear any more comments or questions. Yes, please. Thank you. Elena Fuentes, Catholic UCSF. It would be so interesting for me to watch with a group of colleagues because when you watch with people who perhaps we have a shared interest but we don't have a shared lived experience, I think that would then allow us to have some of those difficult but necessary conversations about is it heavy-handed? It, right. Does it reflect the experience of some members of our faculty or our community. And then once we can establish that, then we can really make directed improvements for change. But when it's global, we, we can react differently. But at the end of the day, we might be working off of different experiences. Right. So I'd be curious to know how well that has worked when it's actually people who work together and who can have that conversation together. Sure. It's most of the time has been with groups of people who work together, who um, are part of the same department. The, the challenge in all of that, of course, is um, who, who in the room feels free to say what and in what way. So as facilitators, constantly assessing what's happening in the room, what are we learning about this department, how much can we push, in what way. Um, but uh, there's a great opportunity and window in that that theater gives as a safe environment up here is to be able to ask them, yes, so you all just experienced this. What did you see? We presented the faculty mentoring sketch in one department, uh, all white, 14 men, one woman. And in the script, the senior faculty male interrupts the junior faculty member about eight times. And when I asked for questions for characters, one of the, one of the faculty raised his hand and he said, yeah, I have one comment. If she interrupted me that many times, I'd never mentor her. And so we were able to ask, or able to say in this case, well, actually in the script, we can tell you that she didn't interrupt him. She was actually interrupted these many times. And we're able to then have a conversation about that. In a different department, I or someone as a facilitator may not go that route. They may say, well, did everyone see that? But in this case, trying to think about, well, who's going to have to carry the burden of addressing that? What's at stake for who in the room is going to have to address that? And so the kind of power that we have standing there to be able to just simply point out an actual fact or the characters to be able to step in. Um, I worked with one actor who would always end up playing... We try to create three-dimensional characters, but for simplistic shorthand, he played the jerk. And <laughs> frankly, when audience members would say something really problematic, he liked to go, I totally agree with you. <laughs> In which case, that audience member would shrink and start to think a little bit more. So I'm taken by something you did at the beginning, which is an a, a inspection of pedagogy, which I think is often the least examined, but also has a huge impact on the pipeline. And I'm wondering if you have other, other skits that you do like that, if you've done them for faculty to talk about mentoring graduate students outside of the medical realm and what that looks like. Yes, um, mentoring graduate students, uh, so PhD dissertation, right. Yeah, so at the University of Michigan Serialty Theater, there's a, a three-vignette mentoring Let's call it a trilogy, but that's awfully grand. So three, three short vignettes, yes, that go through 
this mentoring process between these two individuals to be able to look and examine those different dynamics. Um, and the other part of that, that question was... That was it. Yeah, well, I guess I'll just add really quickly to that is, as another example, the way the theater ends up being a reflection is the very first preview of that piece. We had two white women who previewed it for a group of faculty. And the audience was just, uh, they were in absolute agreement it was way too much about gender. And the next preview we did with a different group was two white men, and there wasn't one word about gender in that piece. And so the idea of, obviously, it just made bare, you know, the idea of neutrality, master neutrality, and what might need to happen then in our own, our own casting, our own facilitation, our own curriculum, so it gave us more information. I will do um, just one last thing, and then maybe one last question. Oh, I'm sorry. The question is, so I started by saying, you know, that you brought up this example of the three women in the lobby and the three men in the van after they'd been engaged. So the question is, you know, do people find this to be a transformational experience? Does it really change people's sort of core perspectives, which I think is what we really need to happen? So Yeah. So the answer is going to be, you know, I, I put up different, the assessment data. And in the end, the reason I didn't mean to be so flip with the data, but the reason is, I guess, in some ways, um, it's not that I'm always critical of it. It's that it's easy to say, oh, people really liked it. It's, I think there are people here that I know um, have a much better understanding and basis to be able to really think about assessing the theater because there's a lot of wonderful ways to assess the efficacy of the theater. So my answer is, is anecdotal, but uh, nonetheless, I, I think significant. And uh, I could tell you story after story of light bulb moments where audience members suddenly had an absolute trigger. I could tell you a lot of different conversations of people who run into me and say, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the presentation. I didn't think much about it later, but then the other day I was in a meeting and all of a sudden X happened or Y happened. So those are two ways. And the last, I guess I'll say, is um, the immediate example is I've had docs thinking about professionalism also come up to me at different times saying, oh, I was in the emergency, I, I, I caught myself. I was in surgery and I squirted something on the resident who was bugging me. Yeah. And, and uh, I realized, like, I cannot believe I just did that. And so the theater comes, you know, barreling back. And the story that he told me is he said he went up to the resident. He said, this is what I did. This is why I did it. It was terrible communication, um, which also becomes a great example of what happens, um, I suppose, once people actually do have these conversations, because I find that played a lot. It ends up being um, uh, quite effective at creating better teamwork and communication. I'll end on, I want to watch time I think that's it. I'm sorry. I'll... Oh, very close. Okay. Great. Then one more question. I'll put up a last image and we'll stop. I saw that hand first. So. You gave one example of the, um, the doctor who lost her temper in, in the beginning. The only thing that I, I found a little bit surprising is um, in my interactions with the, with the medical uh, culture, it's highly more likely that it's going to be a male that loses the temper. Um, both because it's more likely that a male would lose her temper, their, his or her temper, his temper, but also that there's lots, lots, lots more males. Why did you pick a woman to, you know, illustrate that story? Is, um, first of all, the distressed physician course I refer to, I asked Bill Swigert, who leads it, who facilitates it, I asked him about the demographics of those who go to this course, and it's 99% white men, which I think is its own study of race and gender right there, who's, who's acting out in what ways. Um, uh, but uh, picking a, a woman was really, um, it ended up being a casting choice in terms of who would be right for the part. 
Um, but that in itself, of course, is never just, you know, it's a one-dimensional reason for it. But the reason I stayed there is that dilemma or dynamic tension of making choices about the theater piece, that the theater piece needs to stand alone, from my perspective, bring alive different dynamics and ideas, but um, also... Uh, there are hard questions about does it need to serve as this sort of prime example that reflects the specific actual numbers. You know, so if there's 60% of this, should I cast based on 60% of that? Now, all this is to say, in the end, I cast a woman after going through this process because it gave a great opportunity to explore the answers and questions from the audience members that were gendered, blatantly gendered. Um, it's much easier to um, talk about issues of professionalism and the dynamics that are related by talking about identity and gender. Hope I got there eventually. Did I get there? Yeah, wobbly. I felt it too. <laughs> I'll end up putting in this image, and maybe I'll take one last two-sentence stab at that, but I do want to close. Um, but just I wanted you to see, in terms of budget and structure to help, is uh, CRT theater is modeled after, really in many ways, you can almost think of investors, different parts of the university, giving X amount of money to help support the programming, so School of Engineering giving X, performing different sketches or plays at the School of Engineering at no cost, and then some other uh, money coming from different offices. And the Center for the Application and Scholarship of Theater began with $50,000, and two years later, we have a variety of connections and networks and $50,000. So the idea now is to have created enough of a basis to create a program in itself. Um, I do want to stop and not take more time from other people. So um, I want to say thank you all very, very, very much. Really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.